Hey there, and welcome to episode number 341 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. Today, I am chatting with Adriana Herrera about the self-care of unapologetically massive happy endings. Adriana's new book, debut book, in fact, American Dreamer is out this week, and we have so many things to talk about. So many. We discuss the Afro-Latinx cultural experience in her life and her work and in her books, and we talk about the unique homesickness that comes when you're from a Caribbean island and you live in New York City and it's below freezing. We talk about where she's lived. She and her husband have done international relief work around the world, and we also discuss embracing and representing various lived experiences in a story. As she puts it, quote, it's like seeing something in a museum and then taking the glass away and being able to touch it, end quote. We discuss moving from being in the community as a reader to being a debut author, the layers of meaning in the names of the characters in her books, the occupational hazards of writing food porn, how writing romance began as an exercise in self-care while she's completing her master's degree in social work, and how she balances writing with her MSW, how she focuses on making the yes of consent in a romance real and structurally sound, what it means to level up characters so that they are ready for real and committed relationships, and of course we talk about what she's working on and what she's reading. I want to thank Lee for some of her questions. When I asked the Patreon community for their ideas, Lee responded that she was super excited Adriana was coming on the podcast. Quote, she is the loveliest and I am so excited to read American Dreamer. End quote. Thank you, Lee. Now, I also want to make you aware that because Adriana works with domestic violence and domestic violence victims as a social worker, we touch on that topic a few different times throughout the interview, particularly when we discuss writing consent, power dynamics, and her work as a social worker. So I can't specifically timestamp individual conversations because it's something that weaves through that conversation throughout the next hour. If that is a topic that is going to upset you, you might want to skip this one for another episode. And I apologize that I can't specifically tag individual parts of our conversation. Now, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a message at 1201-371-3272. You can ask questions, you can make a suggestion, you can tell me bad jokes. I love all of these things. And I will have information in the podcast show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast as to where you can find Adriana and her Twitter feed, her website, and her newsletter, plus all of the threads on Dominican cooking, which you should not look at while you are hungry. This week's podcast is brought to you by Duchess by Deception by Marie Force. Indulge in the first ever historical romance by New York Times bestselling author Marie Force with a tale Publishers Weekly called a masterpiece with the perfect amount of romance. With Marie Force's knack for creating memorable characters, this romantic tale of a duke's dilemma will appeal to readers of Lisa Kleypas, Eloisa James, and Sabrina Jeffries. Can he make his bride fall in love with him all over again? Find out in Duchess by Deception by Marie Force, on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This week's transcript, as always, is compiled by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. And it is brought to you by our Patreon community. If you have supported the Patreon with a monthly pledge of any amount, you are helping me make sure that every episode is accessible to everyone. And we very much appreciate that. If you would like to join the Patreon community, have a look at patreon.com slash smartpitches. Monthly pledges start at $1 a month. And not only will you be supporting the show, but you'll be part of the group who helps me develop questions helps me suggest guests for upcoming interviews, and helps us pick our book for our quarterly book club on the podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash smartbitches. And if you join, thank you very much. I will have information at the end of the show as to the music you're listening to. I will be telling you what is coming up on Smart Bitches next week, and I will have a terrible joke. And on the show notes, or in the show notes, on smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast, I will have links to all of the things that we talk about, including all of the books that she mentions and the TV shows. There are many, 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 many. Um, this is a really fun conversation. So let's get to it. Without any further delay, on with the podcast. Well, my name is Adriana Herrera. I am a romance author. Um, I am originally from the Dominican Republic and have been living 
outside of the Dominican Republic in various places for the last 16 years. I write, for now, mostly contemporary romance. And for my day job, I'm a social worker, and I work in the domestic and sexual violence field in New York City. I have so many questions. Do you do you think like on days like it's frigid today? Do you think on days like today, you know, I can yes. go back to the DR and it's warm? Yes. Uh, <laughs> particularly the months of January and February are the months that I question very deeply <laughs> the reasons why I decided to leave my Caribbean island home to be in a place where I feel like my face is burning when I'm outside from the cold. (laughs) My face hurts. Why do I live in a place where my face hurts? (laughs) This is actually like the prime time of the year where even my husband, who is a very white man, is like, why do we live here? (laughs) So, yes. Yes. I imagine the cold and the... The things that go with coldness, like the dryness and the and the pain of being outside, I imagine that combines to make a very real homesickness. It does. And my whole family lives back there. I actually immigrated on my own when I was 23 um, to go Dude. to graduate school. Yes. So I wow. didn't grow up here. I grew up there, went to school there, and came for, um, from grad- for graduate school to New York City. So my mom... My sister was here for seven years getting her own graduate degree, but she just moved back in October. So she enjoys sending me photos of herself at the beach with a beer, like on a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, Ouch, that's not fair. I know. She's a little bit of a jerk, but I'm glad that she's enjoying her return home. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like a beach with a beer sounds ideal. And I don't even like beer. I know. I know. Anything, really. Like, even, like, a cold soda. Right? Yeah. Just the sun. The sun in a way that isn't also accompanied by the threat of frostbite. Yes, yes. So I do question um, my decision-making in my life. Although I haven't been in the cold tundra the entire time I've been out of the U.S. I lived um, in Eastern Africa and in Central America for about seven years. So I did have a reprieve from the New York, New York state winters, but I've mostly been in New York state in that time. Wow. You've lived in a lot of places that I know when I've relocated and lived outside of the U S and come back, it really changes my perspectives on American culture. Do you find that true as well? Yeah. And it's interesting. I talk about this a lot with my, with my partner. Um, he also did it like we did um, international relief work together for about seven years and he was doing it before we met too. And it was interesting when we lived both in, we lived in Ethiopia for five years and we lived in Honduras for two years. And for me, those places are more like home because I grew up in the developing world. Like I grew up in the DR. So to me, coming back here always feels different, but not in that way of like, I'm readjusting my expectations to like the, I think the more jarring effect for me is being back in like the Western part of the world because that's not where I grew up in. So it's like a bit of a weird thing for me. Yeah, it's like a cultural second language. Yes, but it is it is interesting and it does put, put a lot into perspective. Like I always tell people that coming here feels really disconnected because you don't have, even, even if I, we didn't have family in Ethiopia, but people are different there. There's just a lot more closeness with the people that live around you, even if you don't know them, like your neighbors, you know them, they're in your house, your kids are in their house. And here things are a lot more individual. And that is really different. And there's a warmth there that kind of like doesn't exist, which is why I wanted to write about Afro-Latinx culture and romance. I think that was something that I was missing It's a completely different community expectation, too. Yeah, it is very different. This is the worst question to ask. I always do this, and I'm like, I'm really sorry to ask you about this, but um, can you tell me about your book? So I can definitely tell you about my book, um, American Dreamer. And I think the first thing I like to talk about with this book is beyond the story of the characters and everything, is that I really wanted to write a story 
that centered the Afro-Latinx immigrant experience. Culture, food, and all of that, of course, and family, which is so important to us. But I really, really wanted to tell a story with like a thriving queer community of color. Like a book where there were queer people, there were people who were living that experience, but where that group was predominantly people of color. Because mm -hmm. when I read romance, and I have been a romance reader for a long time, I've been reading LGBT romance for a long time, you always, you know, you will have a character that's a person of color, but they're like, kind of like the other part of the group. And so I wanted, because that's what I grew up around, um, all my friends growing up at home, back home when we were teens, like in the 90s, like trying to figure ourselves out, like, you know, we, bi, gay, questioning, and we were figuring out life in a place where it really wasn't safe to be out, but we were kind of like a, our little own thriving unit. And mm -hmm. when I moved here, I, some of those same friends were also here too, but we also found kind of like that core group of friends who were all like Dominican, Puerto Rican, Cuban. And I really wanted to show that in a story. It's a wonderful way to highlight a cultural found family that yeah. when you have such a, a very visceral and intimate and important element of your life in common with someone else, it gives you a bridge to connect with them much faster, I would think. Yeah, and, and I think exploring also in romance, which I think it's something that's happening more and more, and I'm really happy to see it, but the intersections of identity like with like an authentic, textured sense to it. Because I am someone that identifies as bi, but I'm also Dominican, and I'm a woman, and I'm an immigrant. And those things are just as important. Mm -hmm. and, and I think when you're coming into... A story with that lived experience. I feel like it's almost like seeing something in a museum and then taking the glass away and being able to touch it. Yes. Like you can, you can, you can see something and it's beautiful when it's a story that's being told from someone that is trying to do a good job of representing that experience. And then there's another layer to it when it's actually someone that's doing that from a lived experience. Like you can, like there's texture to it that just can't be there otherwise. Mm -hmm. If that makes One sense. of the things I love most about romance as a genre is that it gives individual readers the opportunity to see their emotional lives reflected in the stories that they read. Yeah. And whenever there are, especially because it's almost February, so we should get ready for a few of them, uh, media pieces about romance and, oh yes, what is that and why yeah. does it do that? The fundamental message of being told you deserve and should expect love the way that you are is deeply revolutionary. And the idea of being able to represent the intricacies and the immediacy of everyone's experience emotionally and culturally is terribly important. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wish that when writers from outside of the genre came to look at it, they understood that what actually is being said in a romance is that you exactly as you are with all of your combined experiences are as deserving of love and happiness as anyone else. Don't settle. Yeah. Like it's a powerful, powerful thing that you do. And I yeah. imagine that's um, really both inspiring and maybe even a little intimidating. I know it is for me when I've tried. It is. It's intimidating, especially coming from the place of I, I want to write a story that you know, makes people feel seen in a way that I haven't felt seen by the stories that I've read and love, like in general, right? Mm -hmm. And also trying to do that that experience justice and knowing that you can't really mm -hmm. universally put a story out there that's going to resonate, that's going to click, that's going to connect with everyone. But at the same time, wanting to have something that some people that can't otherwise do it see reflections on the, of themselves of their like very like particular selves on the page it's like it's tricky and intimidating but I feel like it's really worth it to try it is I I agree with you I remember when I was writing my novella I was like well I'm just I'm just not going to be able to represent every single young Jewish person's experience at a summer camp like there's no way right I can't do it 
but the expectation that if you're writing something that's going to be housed under a marginalized title, um, that you embody as much of it as possible is really was so intimidating to me. Like, yeah. oh my gosh. It is. It is. An, and also like the, the subject matter, because um, I think for, for me in particular, it was important to try and portray a little bit of the lived experience of what it is to be an Afro-Latinx immigrant right now, like yes, in the world right now. And I was compelled to write very much so because I, I was starting to feel really, it was almost unbearable to listen to the narrative around immigrants a, a couple of years ago. And it's, and it's gotten worse. Yeah. I was going to say it hasn't improved either. Right. So I wanted to show that in a way that felt genuine and that also yeah. was realistic. So with Nesto specifically, who's the main character or the hero in one of the heroes in American Dreamer, He's Dominican. He's lived in the Dominic, uh, here in the U.S. since he moved from the Dominican Republic since he was a child in New York City, which has its own challenges. But, you know, he's, he's got a dream. He's, he's a hustler. He, he wants to make this food truck a success. So he moves to mm-hmm. Ithaca where he has better chances of doing so and then starts running up against like very mild, but also very real obstacles around the fact that there are people that don't want him there. Like, how do you do that without beating people over the head with it almost, but like Mm -hmm. reflecting that this is part of like the lived experiences. These are obstacles that people come against when they're trying to like pursue their American dream. So it's, it's, it's almost like the nuances of it. You don't want to be so preachy, but you also want to be honest and genuine. How have you experienced being a debut author? Um, it's been really good so far, actually. I I tried to come into the romance genre as a writer. I had been in, like, I had been a blogger for a long time of mo- mainly um, LGBTQ romance. And then I, I, ha- I got busier with my own work and kind of that lapse. And then I, I tried to be the liver of how I came in as an author. And I wanted to do writing that I felt was purposeful almost like deliberate and so I think that helped me kind of like understand what my position was coming in but I've been happily surprised because I've been really happy to hear early readers response to Jude and Nesso's story like like what we were like as we were saying before um it can be really daunting to come in with a lived a story with a lived experience that's not the norm and that's presenting conflicts and struggles that are not like what you normally see so it was a little intimidating but it's been good and it's been nice and really heartening to see that a lot of the reviewers that have that I've heard the reactions especially connect to Nesto's like love of his roots his culture that that particular piece of the story has felt special and it's been good for them to read. So that's been really great. What is the, what is the central romance of American dreamer? So the central romance is Ernesto Vasquez, who's a entrepreneur. He has an Afro-Caribbean food truck and he comes. What's it called? Oonje. It's called Oonje. Oh, nice. I love food truck names. So uh, Unje is actually the Yoruba word, which is a West African language that was spoken by a lot of the men and women who were brought as slaves from West Africa. And Unje in Yoruba means nourishment. So that's why I wanted to use the word because in, in the Caribbean, even though we're very different countries, you know, a lot other than Dominican Republic and Haiti, which are in the same island, we're all separated, you know, by the ocean. But right. And we had different colonizers. We speak different languages, but we have the connection of our African ancestors. And our foods are very similar. Names are different, preparations vary, certain ingredients vary, but there's a very strong thread through Afro-Caribbean food. So I really wanted to use a word that like fit for all the islands. And so that's, that's so why Owinje is the name that I chose for Nesto's truck. So Nesto's three best friends, who also will get books, Camilo, Juan Pablo, and Patrice, are Cuban, Jamaican, Haitian, and Puerto Rican. 
So I want, and, and Oonja's food is from all those places. So I wanted a name that really had a space for each of those nationalities and, and identities. Was it harder to name the truck than it was to name the characters? No. I, <laughs> I had names of, all of the names of the characters are, have been some kind of freedom fighter or work, uh, or been involved in the liberation movement. Um, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. There's so many layers to your naming. Yes. You should totally do a workshop on how to name stuff. Yes. I think, I think a lot about doing a workshop on how to write diaspora because I think there's a lot to it. And I, I Oh yes. Yeah. So I'm going to shut the hell up. <laughs> I'm a terrible host today. So Nesto has the food truck and he moves to Ithaca. He moves to Ithaca um, where his mother lives. So his mother um, ha- moved years earlier to um, go and connect with family that were already there. So mom or mommy suggested that he come to Ithaca because there's a thriving food scene there and he would have a much better chance of being like a big fish in a small pond as opposed to New York City where there's tons of competition. So he moves up there. He's giving himself six months. And if he can't make it work, he's just going to give up on the truck and just go back to his previous employment. So he's got a lot of stakes um, going up. And of course, as soon as he gets there, he meets Jude Fuller, who is a librarian in Ithaca, who is also very invested in and developing his own project. And Jude has some background that's painful, and he's still kind of trying to like get his. He's he's worked out on himself a lot, but he's still very reluctant to being in a relationship. But as things go, they can't help it and they fall in love. It must be fun and and so welcoming to create this imaginary world where you can go hang out with these characters and then introduce them to readers. Yeah, it, it was fun. And I, and I wanted to really show the immigrant work ethic, the like the hustle and the resilience mm-hmm. and just the level to which we just go after what we want. And it's it's something that I wanted to reflect, but in a way that was fun, that was positive. I didn't want to do like a toil story. Like I talked, I have a group of friends of other romance authors, mostly are women of color. And we have a chat group and we talk about this all the time, that there is a lot of conflict to our lives, but I don't necessarily want to show like a toil and struggle story. I want to show like just the life. That makes total sense. It counters the predominant narrative that there is only struggle, that there's only unhappiness. Right. Right. Like the foundation of romance would say otherwise. So you've totally picked the right genre. Yes. Right. I, I feel like I'm in the right place. Now I know that your book and your series contains a truly amazing amount of food porn. Mm-hmm. Like, so much food porn, which is great because I love it, but it's also a danger when you're reading and you're like, okay, I need to go eat that right now. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to write? Is it like an occupational hazard to write all of this incredible food? I loved it actually because I I, <laughs> I love food. My my blog, which is no longer, was called the Tipsy Bibliophile, and. M- my that's a great name it was a great I I really enjoyed it because what I would do is I would read the book and then I would do a recipe that was either inspired on the book or that was in the book and I would pair it with a bottle of wine all of those words are wonderful words I know it was a really fun blog so I am just a person that loves food and I love thinking about books and food so to me, it felt really organic that my debut novel would be something that was going to be very amazing food heavy. Just a little, yeah. And also, I really wanted to celebrate Caribbean food in general. And and in a way that was a little bit more in-depth, because I, I'm almost tired of hearing about tostones. Not that we don't love tostones, because we do, but it's like mm-hmm. almost everything you see 
of a person that's Puerto Rican or Dominican in a book. It's like, oh, it's a stone, it's platanos. We love our platano, but there's so much more. Oh, right. And so, and like Haitian food, you almost, I mean, I don't know if I've ever read about Haitian food really in a romance and Haitian food. I mean, don't tell any Dominicans I said this, but it might be my favorite of all Caribbean food. (laughs) It's delicious and spicy and it's so, so good. And so I wanted to kind of give it some love too. I just wanted more, like an expanded experience of what a Caribbean food is in this story. Was there anything in this, uh, any particular dish or item in the, in the story that as you wrote it, that you like ate repeatedly just because, well, it's research. Um, okay. Tostones. I made a few times. Um, and then <laughs> I actually made griot, which is one of the ingredients for one of the Haitian, for the Haitian burrito, which is a traditional Haitian dish. And it's basically pork belly that's marinated for like a day and then braised for hours and then deep fried. There is nothing wrong with any of the sequences of that recipe. Holy smoke. (laughs) It is so, so good. And I hadn't eaten it in years. My... One of my aunts was married to a Haitian man for a long time, and he was probably like the most influential male figure in my life, um, still is. Um, and he was an amazing cook, or he is still an amazing cook. Um, and he would make it occasionally, but it was like a family holiday. Yeah. So I hadn't eaten it in a long time. And there's not a lot of Haitian food here in New York City, which is crazy. Um, but yeah, that I made and I was like, oh, whatever I make this more because this is basically heaven. <laughs> Are you going to do any recipes or um, showcase any particular techniques when you, when the book comes out? I've Just been give away doing, some food? Yeah, so I've been doing it on and off. Um, I've been doing Twitter threads of, of food I make that's Caribbean food. So like on Sunday, I made Dominican red beans, which is... yes. So I, I, I tweeted about that and did like a little thread. So I'll try to do that with at least one recipe for each of the islands. I actually had recipe cards made and I did a couple of giveaways. I'll do more with like five of the recipes from the book if people want to make them. Oh, I, yeah, I think that's brilliant. The, the way in which, oh, pl- uh, please. Pretty yeah. please. I will I will send you recipes if you would like. I uh, I cook all the time. Um, yes, I'll do that. So if you need some like matzo ball soup, challah, I got a great challah recipe. You stick it in the fridge and then the next day you're like, my whole house is edible. I can eat the air. It smells so good. Oh, so, yeah. I will I will take you up on that. My daughter loves making bread and she actually made some pretty decent challah for New Year's. Oh, heck yes. So she she's like 10 years old and she's like a budding baker and bread making is her favorite thing. My 11 year old son loves baking and it's the same thing. Like he'll make a, he made a batch of deep, dark, dark, rich chocolate cupcakes. And I was like, I am amazed. How did you do this? I know. This is incredible. I always tell my partner, he, I'm like, I feel like really good about some of the parenting decisions we've made. Right. <laughs> is that the best feeling? <laughs> yes. Like yeah. turning you loose in the kitchen with an oven was worked out for everybody. For all of us. <laughs> yes. So when you were researching food trucks, I mentioned that the names and the culture of food trucks is something that I find very fascinating. What were some of the things you learned about while researching the the business and the entrepreneurship of the, of the series? So I did um some I did some research around like the business piece of it which was also interesting just to see how many of them fail, how many of them succeed, how expensive it is to kind of like get them going. But I also wanted to learn like the mechanics of how it is to like be in there and cook and be with other people in such a small space. So YouTube, of course, YouTube is a blessing. They had so many videos of people who were food truck owners kind of showing how they were able to, do their work in there in such like tight quarters. 
Mm-hmm. So that was something that I tried to research a lot because I have a couple of scenes in the book where they're inside. And then um, I just sort of tried to look around to see experiences of people who had Caribbean food trucks and how the business was in the cities that they were in. What were some of the things that surprised you? You know, what was, what was surprising, not surprising, because like everybody, it's like, now that we have Food Network, we know so much about the restaurant business. But That's um, true, we're all experts at this point. How hard it is to make them successful was a big piece of it. And also yeah. kind of like the mechanics of how you get investors and things like that. But um, mostly just like learning about how to operate in the, in the space was interesting. Just like the mechanics of it and how they have to do all the cooking outside yeah. in a commercial kitchen and kind of like have everything mostly made by the time they get in the truck was yeah. interesting too, which was something that I hadn't thought about before. I'm like, of course they can't make it all in the food truck. They have to have a kitchen. Right. Yeah. Which makes for a very strange schedule when your yes. when your work day corresponds to feeding people in their work day, but your work day has to start in an entirely different set of right. hours to get everything ready. Right. So I tried to portray that a little bit on the in the book of how Nesto had to like get organized and have his kitchen space and all of that it's entrepreneurship also requires such a such an interesting blend of characteristics it requires uh absolute belief and determination and then an ability to organize yourself an ability to set your own deadlines and an ability to motivate yourself because you're trying to make yourself a success yeah Yeah, it's like a one-man show yep or one woman show yep pretty much (laughs) one person show (laughs) I uh, asked my Patreon community about questions. I like to tell them who the upcoming guests are. And usually I get, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. So I have two questions for you from Lee. Mm -hmm. Lee asked me to say, I am super excited. Adriana is coming on the podcast. She is the loveliest. And I am so excited to read American Dreamer. I would love to hear how she balances writing with her work along with getting a master's. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But um, romance has always been a space of self-care for me in my work. So this experience, I've been toying with it. Like now that I'm kind of in it, I I decided to write seriously when I started the master's, which was um, two and a half years ago. I thought, I'm not going to be working full time. So this is a good moment to explore this, which I've been toying with Mm -hmm. for a long time. And I decided that I was going to do it as something that was self-care, something fun, something creative, a different set of brain muscles. So I've tried to keep it in a space of my life where it's something fun and exciting and creative and helping me build a community that I didn't have before. And I have a very supportive partner who is amazing and is my number one fan. And also my work is also, I, it also kind of motivates me to tell these stories because I have so much wealth of amazing people that I work with every day that it inspires me to write. So it's, it's, it's working out so far in terms of keeping things compartmentalized, but harmoniously connected. That is a balancing act. Yes. It is, but it's, it's, it's okay. It feels a little bit hard sometimes, especially yeah, yeah. with, I'm in my last semester of school and I'm just so over it. I just want to be done. <laughs> yeah. My sister-in-law has her MSW and I remember that semester. She was like, I am over <sighs> this. When does it stop? It is. And with the MSW, you have to essentially work, you know, 600 hours for free. And it's a full social work job. And this year, yeah. last year I did domestic violence because that's the field that I've been in and what I want to go back to. This year, um, I decided I was going to do something less stressful and I'm working with refugee unaccompanied minors and in New York City, which has been incredibly gratifying and they're amazing children. I love working with them. A little stressful. Just a bit. Yes, it is, a, uh, it is a stressful time to work with 
with refugee children, with refugee families. It's just a stress of that. They're very stressed. We're all very stressed. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then you work and spend spend time and energy and the sort of the the output of your professional creativity in something that is deeply precarious and scary. And then you take that and move it into the space of romance where you're creating happy endings for all of the negativity that you negotiate with professionally. Yes. That is a lot. It is a lot. And I also feel like it's, I feel like I talk about this all the time. I see my clients, you know, fighting like hell for what they believe is their, is what they deserve to have, which is safety and sense of self and like regaining themselves after like losing themselves in these like horrible traumatic experiences and so I feel like I want to honor some of that and I don't usually I would never bring in really my clients experiences into my stories but like the resilience and the strength and that like unrelenting feeling like I want better I want to feel better than this. I want to be in a better place. I want, and I deserve it. Like, it's hard for them to get there sometimes, but I see it again and again and again. And I imagine not only reading, but also writing romance. As you said, it's probably part of your self-care. Yeah, it is. Like, unapologetic happy endings. That's kind of like my little tagline. (laughs) Um, Like, I want people to have, not just like a happy ending, like, a huge one, like, yeah, just big and unapologetic. Like I get all of this happiness. Yes. I will absolutely back you up. Happiness is revolutionary. It is. It is. It is. It's really sad. I think sometimes when you think about the literary world and how oh my God. condescending it is because the idea that like none of us would would not want love like we none of us would want to live without love and then the stories that celebrate it just continually get condescended to and like dismissed it's really sad for our world it's baffling isn't it it's really sad for it just says so much in our world about what we value lee also asked and you sort of answered this already but if there's more you'd like to say i i would love to hear it she also wanted to know how your social work background informs the way that you write a relationship? That's a really great question. Um, I really, well, domestic violence specifically and sexual violence is a lot about power and control, right? And like power dynamics Um, and, and values and beliefs around who, who's, who's valued and who's important and who's, got the power in the relationship. So I think about those dynamics a lot. I was actually thinking about this the other day in terms of consent, because I um, committed to write a piece about consent and how I write it in my stories. And affirmative consent is very important. It needs to happen in the story, but there needs to be like a back, like there needs to be a setup and a foundation of where the power dynamics make that affirmative consent viable. So that's, I think, something that I think a lot about in my work, because I think all the time about control and power dynamics and realigning people's sense of their self once they've had their agency taken away. And then I have to I have to inform myself with a lot of that when I'm trying to set up characters in an intimate relationship, because there's a lot of work you have to do under the yes to make the yes real if that that's makes such sense an, oh that's such an interesting way to put that that there's work going on under the yes before it happens right because if you like if you don't have control and agency in a situation and they tell you do you want this and you say yes even if you're saying it in the most like excited way possible if underlining the power dynamic isn't aligned Mm-hmm. then that yes doesn't really have that much substance. So I, I think a lot about those mechanics 
when I'm writing like the second book in the Dreamer series, which I'm copy editing right now and will be out in May, is about Camilo, who's um, um, Nessa's friend. And the other hero is a Dominican billionaire. He is white passing. So he's his father's American. So he looks white. So there's like that whole dynamic. Um, but um, Camilo is a social worker and this billionaire is donating a ton of money to the agency right. that Camila works works for. Right. So right there, there's a power imbalance that I really needed to work at to make it viable. Because if Camilo is involved with this man and this man has so much leverage over the relationship, then that's problematic. So I had to really air that out from the get-go so that it right. felt okay. Um, and I actually air like it's aired out, like it's talked about very early on in the re- in the in the book when the relationship is still not romantic. Although, the, well, if you read it, you'll know. But that's the st- sort of thing that I think about when I think about consent, and that is very much because my work is what it is that I really need to think about. Does power and control make sense here? Mm-hmm. And how is how is consent being communicated in ways that aren't just dialogue? Correct, correct, correct. Because, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've sat in a room where a survivor is giving their testimony, and that yes was there, but that situation was not consensual because right. of the power dynamics that were going on. And so that's the piece that I think about a lot. And then also just, you know, giving people viable, happy endings. Uh, We cover that a little bit in the domestic violence piece Jen and I did um, for you. Yes. And and the piece of even in the courting process, the, the things that are okay and not okay to do and the behaviors that in the long run can't turn out to be equitable. Yeah. I understand that part um, from something that has troubled me from a, for a long time is the there is a frequent portrayal of alpha male behavior that to me reads as deep insecurity. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't read like confidence. It doesn't seem like someone who is self-assured and interested in someone as an equal. It reads to me as deeply insecure and mm-hmm presumptuous, if not predatory. Right. Um, and for a while, the way in which I encountered alpha males, especially in some very specific contemporary tropes, read to me as someone who's absolutely not equipped for a partnership. Mm-hmm. To listen to you talking about the underpinnings of achieving consent and the behavior and the power structure that has to uh, be in place, <laughs> it it makes me want to just play what you've just said to anyone who's like, oh yeah, romance. I'll just write Ron on a weekend. It'll be fine. It'll be right. Easy. No, no, it is not. It is really not. <laughs> it's not. And I think that's the piece where, especially with the alpha male, like I, I mean, we all enjoy a good alpha male. I, I would like to say that it's something like, no, I love, I like a lot of them. I think it's the piece of you creating a character that has the ability to move from emotional disarray or emotionally not developed enough to show up in a relationship how they should. And the whole mm-hmm. other one is a person that believes that they have a right to treat their partner as something they can control and their property. Like those two things are very different. Very, very different. Yes. And when I encounter the second one, I'm like, yeah, no, I can't buy this. Right. One thing is beliefs, attitudes, values, like entitlement and privilege that they think is theirs and not their partners. And another one is someone that just needs to evolve. (laughs) level up yeah you just need to level up you just need to show up like you mean it and be the partner that you should be and then another one is a person that is operating from a complete different value system than the one that i have 
One of my favorite things about the portrayal of the romance in the TV show Brooklyn Nine-Nine is that when the show starts, Jake is not emotionally in a place to handle any kind of adult relationship. And he has to go through five seasons of leveling up as a person Mm -hmm. before he's even remotely ready to engage as an adult, as a functional grown-up in a partnership with another person. Yes. He's he's a good example of someone that needs some serious leveling up. But at the core, he's a good person. And he also, but, and not just a good person, because we're going to be a good person and be terrible partners, but also someone that sees that other person in very key, important ways, the same as him. Yes, very true. It's, Especially given the number of power dynamics that that show explores. It's such a good show. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> I did a massive rewatch of it. Over the summer when my kids were at camp and I was, I was so happy. It is <laughs> and, and the thing with that particular cast, right? Like, and I think that's what's so important to know what kind of community you're building into your world because yes. she gets affirming and incredibly good modeling from really strong people at every turn. Who also fearlessly call him when he screws up yes exactly you need to show up here and do better yep in a loving way and also that show up for him in a loving way and that's like how you build a viable like emotional arc for a character because he had all the tools to like live up and step up when he needed to even though he messed up along the way hilariously so many times Oh yeah. But at the same time, the the foundational message of that show and that community and also in in the romances that we read is that you can level up and still maintain the integrity of who you yes. are, the core values that make you the person that you are and the experiences that you've had are still part of you as a person, but you can also level up. You don't have to completely change your entire personality and your entire way of life right to level up. Yeah, the show Shit's Creek also does a really good job with that. Really? Oh my gosh, this is so good. I wish there was more <laughs> diversity in it, but it is like the emotional arcs of the character, especially now that they're moving into like romantic relationships, is phenomenal. And it's exactly oh. that. They're still the same people, super funny, but they've changed in like really fundamental ways. Yes. Oh, yes. I recommend you get it. A rec- so good. <laughs> I was just going to say, when you get a recommendation for a television show or a multi-series program where characters develop in arcs over multiple multiple series, and you get that recommendation from a romance writer or reader, it has so much more weight with me because most of the time, and I've talked about this a lot, I don't trust TV writers to know where they're yes. going. And I don't watch TV generally. I, I think No, I don't either. I think... Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Schitt's Creek are the only shows maybe in the last five or six years that I've actually watched every episode because I usually like just give up on them after like three or four. There's a bunch of like nonfiction documentaries yeah. I love and Bob's Burgers. I will watch every episode of Bob's yes, Burgers. I like, I like like crime, like I like Endeavor, which is like a British mystery, like that sort of thing like I'll watch, but Schitt's Creek's amazing. I bawled at the Grand Restaurant in the fourth season. Really? We wept. I wept. Oh. It's very, very good. Okay. You will like it. I have it. it on my list now. I'm so screwed. There goes all my free time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have another question related to, um, actually, let me ask you about a terminology. My my default terminology was always domestic violence, but you more more commonly use, is it IPV? Yes. Specifically for romantic relationships, yes, I use um, intimate partner violence. I also use domestic violence um, because in my work, I don't just work with the intimate partners, but with the children. If there are children in the home, there's also elder abuse, like between like parent and child. And that all kind of falls under the domestic violence umbrella. Um, But most of my work is specifically about intimate partner violence. Is a type of domestic violence that's um, 
it's it's very because then there's also like the sexual um violence piece to it and it's just different it's just a different dynamic than like the more right. general family violence right okay so i want to make sure i'm using the the right terminology to talk to you about your work um when you did the q a for um for the site mm-hmm. and thank you again for that yes um, it is still one of our most linked to and read pieces of content. It's really an incredible, it's just an overview of what it is that you do and why it matters in romance. You mentioned that you notice a lot of parallels between the work of advocates on behalf of domestic violence and intimate partner violence victims, and also the work of readers and romance authors in romance as a genre as well. Yeah, I hadn't ever thought about that parallel, but it makes a an enormous deal of sense. What are some of the connections that you've noticed? So three things mainly. Um, one, the one that it seems obvious is that it was sort of like a space, a community that was in its origins built up by women for women. I mean, it's shifted, of course, and there's all kinds of persons that read romance, but in its inception, it was something that was built by and for women. Um, the other one is, of course, the, the connection to feminist thought and values. Um, empowerment of women, affirmation that women's desires and needs are important and valuable. So that piece of it also is very connected to just the world of domestic violence advocacy work. This is always, it was also started by women. There were initially issues and ideas that were considered women's issues and ideas. So mm-hmm. it was yeah. very much connected to that type of thing. And then the third one is the belief that everyone deserves a happy ending, that we all deserve, no matter what we've come with or walked with, that we all deserve to be happy, that we deserve a, a, a like a happy ending, whatever that happy ending is. So that's the third one. I mean, there are other similarities that are, I would say, probably not as whimsical as um, I think representation is a big conversation that's happening right now in the domestic violence world. For years now, it's been a notable issue that the leadership in agencies working domestic violence are predominantly white white women, the frontline staff and the clients are not, which is part of why I'm in grad school again, because I was in a, I, I, I could only reach a certain degree of, of management before yep. I had like hit a ceiling. Yep. And so that's a conversation that's happening right now, very vigorously in the domestic violence space. The importance yeah. of having people in leadership positions that can speak to and understand the lived experiences of the clients who are by and large women of color, women of lower socioeconomic status. There's of course like domestic violence cuts across all, all identities, but in my experience, especially when you're working in urban areas, like big cities, it's very much an issue that there's a, our clientele by, by and large is women of color. And so that piece of it, of having that be the client and then having um, a leadership that can't truly connect to that in, in real ways is problematic. But right. I think that's also very resonant in a different type of way to the conversation that's happening right now in romance. So when did you first begin reading romance? And what led you to saying, all right, I know you you said earlier when you started grad school, you were like, I'm also going to try writing. I'm going to do this now. It's, you know, butt in chair, hand on keyboard time. But what, what led you into the genre? When did you first begin reading it? And what was your real impetus to being like, all right, I'm going to do this now. I got this. This is, this is it. This is it. Um, I've been reading romance since I was a teenager. I would probably say my mom used to get me these like Spanish translations of this book series about a princess named Cece. I don't know if those were Spanish trans, um, from English to Spanish or German to Spanish. It might have been Austrian, but it was like a whole series of this princess that had this like unrequited love with this prince. And I was like maybe nine or 10 and I was like obsessed with those. And then Babysitter's Club. I went to an American school in Dominican Republic. So we got a lot of 
a lot of our classes were in English. So we got a lot of books in English. So that was a part of it. But um, growing up, I had some family here in the States, in New York and in San Diego, in California. And my my cousins were a lot older than I was. I had um, female cousins that were like in their 20s and 30s when I was in my early teens. And I would read their romance novels. I have one cousin who was a nurse and she worked the night shift and she, to fall asleep in the morning, she would read romance novels and she would have stacks of Harlequin Present books next to her bed. So I would just read them. My struggle was that I didn't live here. I lived in Dominican Republic. So I would have to secure my bag, as you would say, of romance novels in the summer, and they would have to last me pretty much all year. So I would use all the money that I got from my parents to spend on clothes, on books. And then my when I told my mom that I had written this book and that it was getting published, my mom doesn't speak English, so this conversation happened in Spanish. I was like, mom, I'm ready. I wrote a book, it's getting published. And she was like, finally, all those books you <laughs> you smuggled into the country had to pay off. <laughs> she was like, my mother calls me a diminutive of my name. So she was like, I mean, like, you remember I used to give you $100 for the summer and you'd come back with 100 books in that suitcase, not a single t-shirt. <laughs> and I was like, yep, mom, that was the plan all along. Yep, finally it paid off. Finally, (laughs) all that book reading paid off. And you know, I have carried a lot of books in a suitcase. That is a heavy proposition. Oh my goodness. The Kindle changed my life, Sarah. I cannot tell you (laughs) how it changed my life. We were living in Ethiopia when the Kindle, first Kindle version came out. And I was doing, still, still doing the same thing of literally having one suitcase that I would bring home and fill with books so that I could have books read. <laughs> and when the Kindle came out, was this this literally, it changed my life. You had the wedge one? Yes. That was like the equivalent of that big cell phone that people used to have with the big antenna. Yes. <laughs> that, that was the first one I have. I've had like five of them at this point, but it was life-changing for me. Okay, I guess the second part of the question was, how did I decide to start writing? I decided to start, I remember the moment when I said, I'm just going to do this. And it was, there was an intersectional feminism panel at the Strand Bookstore, which um, happened maybe two summers ago, or maybe three. And I had been writing this novel. I had been writing American Dreamer. And I had it kind of like in a secret file that I kind of like peeked into. And then this intersectional feminism panel happened and all the authors that were on the panel were white women, some of who I love and love their books. Sarah McLean was one of them and she's wonderful and I love her and her books. But it was really jarring to me that in a conversation about feminism, you know, and romance, Mm -hmm. there were no women of color or people of color of any gender. And so I thought in that moment, I was like, I need to finish this fucking book. Because I'm done. I was like, I'm going to write it. And I'm hoping it, it, like, I want my book in the romance space because I have things to say. And so that was my moment. It is very, very difficult to to pivot to the I'm going to do this now point. Yeah. It's very scary. Yeah. I mean, I think you need, I guess, something that, like, compels you or, like, really kind of sets a fire under you. And I think that was the moment for me. I'm like, I'm... I just need to do this because I feel like there needs to be an opening for this kind of story. So what are you working on right now? You mentioned earlier that your, your, your heroine of the, is it the next book is also a social worker in your same field? Yes. So that book is written and I'm in the final um, stages of editing it and it's coming out in May. Um, It's called American Fairy Tale. And that's the second book. Um, actually, I, I finished the third book and I'm writing, I'm plotting the fourth one right now. But I am actually working on something with my agent. It was a book that I finished last year. And it's a contemporary romance set in Ethiopia. It's a gay romance. And it's oh, wow. a Dominican-American relief worker 
who goes to Ethiopia for the first time um, after having lived there as a child and begins a relationship with one of the Ethiopian U.S. embassy workers and his team. So I'm working on that with my agent with the hope that we can get it out there soon. I mean, it, it's, it's, not, it's not angsty. It's not super angsty. It's kind of angsty because being in a same-sex relationship, it's illegal in Ethiopia. Right. So there's, there's complications about that. But mostly, I, I love Ethiopia. We lived there for a long time. Um, the first year we got married, we lived there. And then we came back when my daughter was three months old. So my daughter's first three years were in Ethiopia. We have a very special connection to that country. And I really wanted to write a story that portrayed the beauty of Ethiopia and what a special place and what a rich history it has. Because I, I, people have this sense of Ethiopia that, you know, it's accurate in some ways. Like there's a lot of poverty and a lot of hunger, but there's also this other whole world and history and incredible culture that I don't think gets talked about enough. So I wanted to like, kind of like do this little like love letter to Ethiopia, which I consider like my second home. What books are you reading that you want to tell people about? Mm, I'm always reading like 10 things at a time. Yeah, I have that problem. So that's hard because I'm always like reading something on my Kindle, listen to something on the commute, and I also have a book. So right now I'm reading Zoe Castile's second book in her Happy Ending series, which is super fun. I just started the latest KJ Charles book last night. And as always, she's like, amazing. And I'm listening to the last few chapters of Michelle Obama's memoir. Her life could be the most amazing romance novel ever, including the most ha amazing happy ending. So I'm right. I, those are the things I'm reading right now. I mean, honestly, it, if I'm being frank, it's lived up to expectations because my expectations were out of this world and they've lived up to it completely. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank Adriana for hanging out with me and talking about all of the things. If you would like to find her debut book, American Dreamer, it is available everywhere ebooks are sold. And I will have links to it in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. You can find her on her website at Adriana Herrera Romance, and I will have links to her Twitter handle and a specific thread on Dominican cooking if you wish to look at some visual food porn, because why wouldn't you? That sounds awesome. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Smart Bitches or at Smart Bitches on Twitter or at Smart Bitches on Instagram, which is run by Amanda. She does Wreck It Wednesday. So if you need a book recommendation and it's a Wednesday, head over there. She'll help you out. And if you want to email me about the podcast or you have ideas or questions or a bad joke, you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com or you can leave a voicemail at 1-201-371-3272. I love hearing from you. So thank you in advance. This week's podcast is brought to you by Duchess by Deception by Marie Force. Indulge in the first ever historical romance by New York Times bestselling author Marie Force with a tale Publishers Weekly called, quote, a masterpiece with the perfect amount of romance, end quote. With Marie Force's knack for creating memorable characters, this romantic tale of a duke's dilemma will appeal to readers of Lisa Kleypas, Eloisa James, and Sabrina Jeffries. Can he make his bride fall in love with him all over again? Find out in Duchess by Deception by Marie Force, on sale now wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. If you have supported the show Patreon with a monthly pledge of any amount, thank you. You are helping me transcribe this and every episode, and you help keep the show going. If you would like to join the Patreon community and support the show, it would be awesome if you did. Have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches. Monthly pledges begin at $1 a month, and you will be part of the group who helps me decide questions. Upcoming guest suggestions are also a thing, and you help us pick the book for our quarterly book club. Have a look at patreon.com slash smartbitches, and thank you very much in advance for having a look. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. This is the Pete Bug Fairies. This is Tom in the Front. You can find this album, Black House, at Amazon or iTunes or wherever you buy your funky music. Coming up on Smart Bitches, we have reviews of new books, and we have a new discussion question this weekend about your favorite tropes that might be a really hard question to answer. We also have another edition of Cover Snark, a new edition of Unlocking Library Coolness, and a brand new Covers and Cocktails sponsored by 1001 Dark Nights. 
This is going to be a big collection of cocktail options too. So come on by. It is awesome when you hang out with us. And of course, we will have books on sale every day and help a bitch out on Tuesday because I know that's part of what you like. As usual, I will have links to all of the things we talked about and all of the books that we mentioned during this episode in the show notes. So should you wish to go shopping and you shop through the site, you are helping support the Hot Pink Palace. So thank you for that. And I always end with a bad joke. Are you ready? This is pretty terrible. What do you call shoes that are made from bananas? What do you call shoes that are made from bananas? You call them slippers. <laughs> Slipper. <laughs> that is from Flop Scratch on Reddit. Such a dumb joke. I love it so much. It's so dumb. And I'm also wearing slippers, so now I'm very happy. On behalf of Adriana Herrera and all of the animals and people that are hanging out with me now, we wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you here next week. <laughs>